大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, I'm Wood Kirchner. Thanks for joining me for a discussion of Chinese foreign direct investment, or FDI, in Europe, and new rules and regulations at EU level that could lead to closer scrutiny of Chinese acquisitions. From Paris, I'm joined by Agatha Kratz, Associate Director of Rhodium Group, and here in the Merix Experts Studio in Berlin, I'm with Merix Deputy Director Miko Huatari. Both Agatha and Miko have co-authored a new report on Chinese FDI in Europe. Now let's start with that. Miko, contrary to public perception, Chinese investments have actually continued to decline last year. Have Chinese companies lost their appetite for European firms? Not really. This is part of a broader global pattern where Chinese investment has peaked in 2016 and since then has declined. The main reason for that is really that the Chinese government is clamping down on capital outflows and trying to restrict certain types of investments that um, the government thinks are not appropriate for the Chinese economy, particularly in the fields of real estate, etc. The European trend is in line with that global trend, and uh, we are still on relatively high levels. But indeed, yes,、uh, we have seen a decline for the last two years. And when we do talk about、uh, Chinese、uh, direct investment in Europe, what kind of figures are we talking about?、Uh, you're saying a decline, yes, but still high level.、Uh, can you put a number on that? Sure, we have roughly 17 billion、uh, euros of Chinese investment in Europe last year as a total aggregate, and this is、uh, less than half than what we've seen in 2016. So this is quite a dramatic、uh, decline, but、um, if we look back five or six years ago, this would still have counted as quite a record year. And we also see still, you know, expansions in certain sectors. So Chinese investment is much more diversified these days, and we've seen record numbers for、uh, sectors, for instance, in biotech. The countries the money is going to mainly are the UK, Germany, and France.、Uh, they are still the main destinations of Chinese FDI. So, apart from biotech, Agatha in Paris,、uh, what are the kind of assets、uh, Chinese investors are looking for? Chinese investors have been very diversified、uh, this year. Investment have been spanning across a wide range of sectors. Usually, in previous years, what happened is that、uh, you would have one or two what we call mega deals, like 2017. Uh, CIC acquisition of Logico, which was in itself 14 billion euros, and in those cases, usually that tilts the balance between sectors towards one in particular, in which the mega deal is done. This year, because there have been much fewer mega deals,、uh, we've got a much wider, more diversified spread of sectors. One of the Rising sector this year has been health and biotech, but、uh, financial services were strong as well. Consumer products and services were strong as well, and as you would expect, automotive、uh, still pretty resilient.、Uh, but none of the sectors we look at and we define in our yearly studies has taken up more than 20% of all investment. But is there a clear strategy behind all these acquisitions, either from the companies or from the Chinese government? I mean, from the companies, definitely.、Uh, you don't go into the European Union and、uh, proceed to a big acquisition unless you have a strategy for your company. The usual strategies for Chinese companies investing in Europe are either because you want to well acquire a brand. I think this year, one of the big Chinese investment in France, for example, was in Lava,、uh, which is a very iconic French brand. Some of those acquisitions are also just. 
technological asset acquisitions, uh, as you would expect. So companies purchasing high-level, high-tech European companies. And then, you know, it's quite expected of Chinese, for example, financial services companies to want to have an outlet or a distribution network in Europe. And so uh, seeing financial services acquisition uh, is also part of that strategy. Now, um, what you point to or refer to is, is there an impact of Chinese industrial policy or uh, Chinese guidance on those uh, investments? Well, what I can say is actually that this year there's been fewer ICT investment than in previous year, for example, uh, which had been one of the sectors that the Chinese government was encouraging companies to invest in. Uh, so a little bit less there in 2018. In addition, a little bit less of investment, as I said, in infrastructure or transport utilities, which has also been an anchorage sector in 2017 by the Chinese government. And that's also linked, and I think this is an important finding in the report, that actually the proportion of state-owned enterprises in Chinese outward investment this year was a little bit lower, at 41%, uh, which is almost the all-time low for SO investment in the European Union. Uh, so those might be linked, but overall a little bit less of ICT investment, a little bit less of infrastructure investment, and pretty, once again, expected investment from this type of economy, the Chinese economy, that's upgrading, that's uh, moving towards services sector, health, uh, well-being, and sectors of that kind. Now, Miko, one of the investments that made headlines here in Germany uh, was Geely buying a stake in Daimler. How does that fit into the pattern that um, Agatha has just described? Well, first of all, we need to clarify that Geely, Geely's investment in Daimler is one that's not covered in our database. So we look at these deals very closely, but this is an investment that was below 10%, uh, I would say, on purpose, to avoid certain types of scrutiny also. What is the case is that Geely is indeed investing across Europe. As you know, it has a very strong presence in, in Volvo already, has expanded last year, and therefore you know uh, spreads its wings in Europe, if you wish. But the Daimler case is not covered in our analysis here because it's not FDI proper. It's an investment that is low, below 10% and therefore uh, should be counted as a different type of investment. But uh, still, I mean, the the reason behind such an investment um, that might pinpoint uh, to overall interests of Chinese uh, companies in European companies, what does such an investment sort of show us? What does it tell us? It's very clear that Geely is probably the avant-garde of seeking, indeed, innovation partnerships with uh, European companies that not only lead to productive links in terms of uh, branding, etc., but these are really about long-term partnerships, for instance, with a view on developing electric mobility, electric vehicles together, battery technology, integrating actually what German European automotive industries has uh, achieved in the past with a vision for what is going to happen in China mainly and first, uh, which is the future of, of automotive industries. Before we move on, a quick word about Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, Agatha, main destination for Chinese money or is that more myth than reality? Very much a myth. I mean, Southern Europe is a little bit of a different discussion following the 2011-2012 debt crisis. A lot of Southern European assets were, of course, put to sale. So there was a big appetite back then by Chinese investors 
to get to acquire um, Southern European assets. Now, this year, uh, the levels are a bit down from 2014, for example, levels, but still quite an interest in Southern European assets. Now, Central and Eastern Europe is a different story. Uh, year after year of doing this report between the Rodion Group and Merix, we've identified Central and Eastern Europe as actually an underperformer in terms of attracting Chinese investment. Central and Eastern Europe punches below their weight. This year, in particular, those countries only attracted about 1.5% of all Chinese investment into the Union, which is very limited. Interestingly, those tend to go to actually quite productive, quite a number of greenfield investment, which is good for employment, which is the kind of investment that those uh, countries have been seeking for. Uh, so fewer acquisition than in some places outside of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, but still very, very limited uh, Chinese flow of Chinese investment into the region. If we talk about the overall sentiment uh, towards uh, Chinese money, there were also some deals that didn't go through as smoothly as planned. Um, there was the um, attempted takeover of 50 Hertz, a Berlin-based high-voltage energy network operator. Now we have that whole discussion about Huawei and the 5G networks. Um, overall in Europe, is there a bit of a backlash against Chinese money? I wouldn't say it's a backlash, but it's it's much greater scrutiny. It's also an attempt to get better clarity about what is actually happening. So to improve our database, our joint assessment of what's happening, because of course there hasn't been a great deal of attention with regard to this phenomenon in the periphery of Europe, I would say, and now we have a much greater effort to understand what's happening and indeed also on the European level a new screening framework that will facilitate and enable member states and actually guide them to set up investment screening mechanisms that will provide greater clarity about what's actually happening plus also enable them to actually block under certain circumstances deals if they want to. What is uh, Brussels' role in all of this? Um, Agatha, does this new mechanism mean that uh, Chinese FDI, that investment decisions in the future will have to be approved by Brussels? No, <laughs> this is the short answer. Uh, no, what that means is that the uh, European Union is first, um, as an addition to what Miko was saying, waking up to the fact that parts of Chinese investment into Europe might deserve greater scrutiny. This is something that we had seen in many other OECD countries, that the US, that Australia, that Canada, countries as such, were becoming over the past few years more concerned, worry, or at least maybe less naive about some Chinese investment into their economies. So the EU is merely catching up, really, to that realization. And by the EU, I mean the EU and member states, of course, uh, because for anything to happen, like what happened last year at the EU level, the setting up of a whole investment screening framework, you've got to have very strong backing from member states. Uh, now, what the EU does and what it did this year was uh, create a framework and agree on a framework that would allow uh, member states, first and foremost, to coordinate their responses, share information, demand information from each other or require information from each other, should they have concerns about a uh, transaction happening at the EU level. It also encourages, incentivizes uh, member states to think about those issues more, because as you might know, only half of Europe's EU's member states have or had a screening mechanism up to last year. And so by creating a framework that will demand and require of those those member states to, for example, have a point of contact in every single country uh, that deals with FDI by encouraging those countries, every single one of the member states, to produce on a yearly basis a non-public report to be submitted to the Commission 
on uh, the state of inward investment and uh, screened investment in their economy. This incentivizes member states simply to take more action and scrutinize a little bit more what's happening in terms of inward investment into their economies. Uh, so that's the, main, that's the main effect to me, and I think this is what we note in the report. But uh, in practice, does it mean that uh, Chinese investors, Chinese companies that want to invest in Europe in the future will face more hurdles before they can make any deals here? Indeed, it is possible that member states decide that more Chinese deals will be scrutinized. Um, the main reason for this is if you look at the criteria of the new EU framework, it uh, incentivizes mem member states to look at state-owned investment, at investments that are backed by political programs, by industrial policy, and it also expands the lists of critical sectors that member states are allowed to be a bit more careful about when Chinese investors are coming in. And based on these criteria, if you look at the patterns of Chinese investments, there is indeed a high degree of overlap. This means that member states can construct cases where they can then argue and say, well, look, uh, this is in a critical sector, there's an SOE uh, investing here, it is backed by an uh, industrial policy plan, and it potentially affects public order and security. This still remains the main uh, focus point of the screening mechanism. And then, of course, they have the right to block or um, find ways to deal with this transaction. Agatha, you want to add to that? Yeah, I would add that um, the mechanism also allows uh, member states to allow investment, even if they are in a sector that's sensitive, even if they're state-owned, and even if they're considered or, or feared to be in a state-promoted sector, so uh, part of industrial policy from the sending state, for example. But that means that member states will both be able to be more careful of inward investment, but that at the end of the day, they will retain the last word on any single investment and they'll be able to either reject it or accept it. But uh, do you expect that uh, then in the future, fewer investments by Chinese uh, companies will be approved within the European Union? Because you say in your report that uh, a great number of deals that have been approved in the past by individual member states if screened retrospectively, would have fallen under these new mechanisms. So do you expect this to slow down Chinese investments? Um, maybe Agatha first? I would say two things to your excellent question. The first one is that European member states without the screening mechanism still would have to develop one if they wanted to vet Chinese investment, of course, because if they don't yet have the legislation in place, they wouldn't be able to vet Chinese investments coming in. Uh, so that's the first point. The second one is that in the report, we do point to the fact that if we look at 2018 transactions and acquisitions, and we only look at acquisitions above a certain threshold of 1 million, we find that 82% of all 2018 acquisitions above 1 million could have potentially been scrutinized. Now, that's the widest definition of that scrutiny that we could find. Uh, we took a very, very expensive approach to this exercise to try and understand how much of those uh, transactions could have been scrutinized. But of course, uh, for that to happen and for an, an investment to be rejected, then those transactions have to be found 
to have an effect on member states' security and public order, uh, which is a very different matter, of course. You might think that the sector is uh, potentially problematic, you might think that the investment is state-owned, but you would still have to justify and you would still have to explain your decision by proving or by showing that that transaction has an effect on your public security and order, which of course diminishes the potential scope of the framework and the mechanism. On top of this, I would add that the EU screening framework and EU's approach in general actually remains on the liberal side of things. The screening framework is actually much less restrictive, much less comprehensive than frameworks, similar frameworks, for example, in the US. We have a very limited look at investment, for example, below 10% that don't qualify as FDI. And because of that, the regulation legislative framework around investment remain extremely liberal, extremely open. And on top of this, you need to add that Europe as a whole, member states, European member states as a whole, remain countries that are very open to investment. So if they decide to remain open, if they decide that their main benefit, economic benefit, is in letting investment come in, then the effect might be limited. Miko, uh, your take on that? How will Chinese investors react to this? Well, in general, I fully agree with Agatha's assessment that it's up to member states to make what they want with this screening framework in general. But we already have a trend that points um, to greater hurdles for Chinese investment. I mean, let's be let's be honest about it. We have seen certain transactions being blocked or the German government finding ways to circumvent the Chinese transaction. So it's it's a new reality where member states look more carefully at Chinese investments, and particularly with a view on critical infrastructures and critical technologies. And for those two sectors, I would expect that um, indeed member states will have a much more careful look. And that will, of course, also lead Chinese investors uh, into a situation where they will be more careful in looking at what is actually possible. And will their transactions be blocked? Will it require greater transparency from them? What do they have to do to actually continue their engagement here in Europe? Now, um, this investment uh, screening mechanism framework uh, by the EU, that comes amid an overall change of thinking about China in policy circles, uh, uh, not just in policy circles, also in industry associations. Do you see this as the beginning of a broader overhaul of uh, Europe's trade and investment policies in China and maybe elsewhere? Miko first. What's obvious is that it's it's not only the EU that is rethinking China's commercial presence. It's a development that certainly is being led by the US um, in terms of speed and also the degree of concerns that we see from Washington, but also developments in Japan, Australia, Canada point to a greater scrutiny of what China Chinese economic actors are doing in, in, in their marketplaces. And um, one of the areas beyond investment screening most likely is going to be export controls, that is, uh, controls about what type of dual-use technologies are we sharing with the Chinese by ways of export or by ways of innovation cooperation, etc. This is certainly a field where uh, member states and the EU will uh, be more careful in the future. Another area most likely is going to be the digital realm, data security, privacy concerns. All of these issues will become much more prominent because of the fact that Chinese uh, companies are entering European markets with their services in these fields, including in logistics, but also platform services uh, in the mobile environment. And as everyone knows, um, Huawei telecommunications infrastructure is probably the area 5G technology where 
Chinese presence has led to the, the biggest concerns and uh, we are currently just in the midst of the debate what we want to do about it. Agatha, beyond that, could you see the EU maybe then move to a much more proactive, let's say, industrial policy? There, there are discussions about that. Is that an area where you see the EU becoming much more proactive? I think the main approach and the main way to define the way that the EU and other OECD economies, uh, but the EU in particular, have changed their approach over the past few years is the fact that, and they say it themselves in those terms, they've become less naive about uh, Chinese investment, Chinese commercial activities in Europe, and their broad economic engagement with China. Now, there's two dimensions to this, the ones that Miko points to, including the very kind of harder security aspects. And then what you point to, which are softer to a certain extent and more or broader uh, competitiveness issues. Are we equipped uh, to compete with China? Is Chinese systemic competition going to affect us um, and our economies and our companies and our workers in the next few years? And how do we deal with this? And how do we deal with sometimes unfair Chinese competition? And this is where broader reflections that you mentioned from uh, the presidents of uh, France and from uh, Chancellor Merkel, but more broadly, I would say, come into question. At the moment, there's a big reflection, there's a big thinking in Europe about whether we need to arm ourselves better to fight not only security spillovers, but also competitiveness and economic spillovers from China, quoting the tools that might come up as responses or at least come into focus in that reflection are uh, public procurement tools, for example, thinking about whether we should be completely open to Chinese contractors, Chinese companies bidding for European procurement markets when Chinese procurement markets are open for sure, and when those companies, Chinese companies, are for some of them subsidized and, and fairly then equipped um, to propose low prices on our markets. Other aspects of that, and France was very vocal, but Germany as well, on that matter is competition policy, competition tools. Should we amend the way that we think about our competition tools and competition policy in Europe uh, to better take into account the distortions, competitive distortions induced by uh, Chinese players? Those are very big chunks of reflections that are going to come. I would add that European governments are not the only ones concerned. Uh, the BDI paper that was released a few months ago is extremely telling of uh, the trend that's not only a political trend but that's also a business trend uh, now reaching throughout Europe with European companies wondering uh, what the future holds for them from a playing field that is definitely tilted by uh, the specificity of Chinese players. A final question to both of you. In the face of the growing competition from China that you've both talked about, the um, European market, is it going to remain an open market or is it going to be uh, much more sort of protected um, in the near future? Agatha first. Short answer, if I may. <laughs> Short answer, I, I would say the main determinant will be EU election, both parliamentary election and uh, different national elections. Uh, it's all up to member states, of course, to decide whether they want to keep the market open. I think many people in Brussels, for sure, want the, want the market to remain as open as possible. And when you look at the FDI uh, screening uh, framework that has been put in place, it is first and foremost um, instrument that allows Europe to remain open by shutting down parts of its openness that are considered to be dangerous or um, threatening to public security and uh, public order. So I would expect uh, the main determinant to be upcoming elections. Miko? If I can add a second main determinant, I think it really depends on China. So the question, to what extent uh, China will actually change course, uh, will determine to what extent Europe 
needs and perceives the need to defend its openness. And defending openness will mean being a bit more careful about certain Chinese transactions, about certain Chinese commercial activities. But I would argue that Europe fundamentally will remain open and it really depends on China what the, the, the overall pattern will be. So, a lot of uncertainty about European elections in May and developments in China. Miko and Agatha, thanks a lot for sharing your insights. I was talking there to Agatha Kratz, Associate Director at Rhodium Group in Paris, and Miko Huotari, Deputy Director at Merix in Berlin. You can find the joint report by Merix and Rhodium Group on Chinese FDI in Europe and the impact of Europe's new investment screening framework on our website. I'm Ruth Kirchner, thanks for listening and Bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.